Well, good morning, Chapel Roswell. I am so glad that we are in worship with one another together. My name is Joe McKechnie. I am so blessed to be the pastor here at Chapel Roswell. I am glad that, that you are here this morning. It's a big day, a big Sunday, because after all, we're counting down the days. Only 15 days left until what? College football. 15 days until college football. As a graduate of the University of Georgia, I have high hopes for the Bulldogs. But let me take you back to a distant Bulldog team. We're going back to the year 1897. Georgia was playing football. In fact, the previous year, 1896, they only played three games. They only played three games in 1897. The University of Georgia had a coach. His name was Pop Warner. Maybe some of you have heard of him before. And one of the players during that 1897 season was a young man named Richard Von Gammon. Richard Von Gammon, he hailed from Rome, Georgia. Early that season, the Bulldogs played two games. They played Clemson. They beat Clemson. They played Georgia Tech. They beat Georgia Tech. Game number three was played in what is now known as Piedmont Park. They were playing the University of Virginia. Now, Virginia was up 10 to 4 late in the fourth quarter. Richard Von Gammon, he was playing defense, and he jumped into a pile in an effort to make a tackle. As the players unpiled from the pile, they noticed that Richard Von Gammon was still motionless on the field. Two doctors in the stands, they rushed down onto the field. They tried to help him. He was rushed to Grady Hospital, where unfortunately he passed away. Football was still a new sport, and many considered it to be barbaric and dangerous and tragic. In fact, on the day that Van, Ga Van Gammon died, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, really back then it was just known as the Atlanta Journal, they ran a front-page article that proclaimed that his death was the death knell to football. Everyone assumed that now this violent sport was being exposed and it was going to just fade away. Critics of football were very outspoken about the incident. And in fact, the Georgia legislature was in session at the time. And within a couple of days, a representative introduced legislation that would have outlawed football in Georgia. The bill passed with a vote of 91 to 3. Now, there were three colleges in Georgia at the time that played football. Let's figure out what they are. Okay, Georgia, that's one. Georgia Tech, that's number two. What was the third school in Georgia, university, the third university that played college football in 1897? Anyone want to take a guess? They were a powerhouse. I heard it, Mercer. Mercer University was one of the big three in Georgia at the time. Those teams, realizing that their sport was about to be banned and outlawed, they all disbanded. The bill, like I said, it was passed in the legislature. Now all they needed was the governor to sign off. It was at this point that Von Gammon's mother intervened. She wrote a heartfelt letter to the state representative, and this letter was then passed along to the governor. She expressed her sadness, obviously the grief over her son's death, but she said, my son and so many others love the game of football, the teamwork, the camaraderie, just the passion of the, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. It was something that our son really, really loved. The governor, touched by her letter, vetoed the bill, and football in Georgia continued. Von Gammon's mother was since referred to as the woman who saved football in Georgia. Everyone assumed that football was dead, and yet seemingly, when there was no hope at all, in came the effort to save it. I share that because, truthfully, the same can be said for me. I, I think the same can be said for you as well. Because of Joe's sin and selfishness, I have been banished to a life separated from God. And yet, 
God had a rescue plan in store for me. God had and still has a rescue plan in in, uh, desire for you to be in relationship with him. God has a rescue plan for those who don't yet know him. And that's why we refer to the gospel as the good news, that you and I are saved by God through our faith in him. Now, last week, we kicked off a four-part series entitled Radical. We looked at the, the radical grace that God lavishes down upon us. If you missed the message last week, I would encourage and invite you to check out the chapelrosal.com website. You can watch it. Grace, this radical grace, it's something that we don't deserve. It's something that we can't earn. It's something that we can't attain, we can't obtain, and yet it is freely offered to us from God. Scripture is full of examples of God's radical grace. Last week I mentioned that Christianity is really the only world religion that focuses on grace. You see, other faiths, they focus on what we need to do to win God's approval or what we need to do to earn a place in God's presence. But as a follower of Jesus, we can't focus on what we do for God. Rather, the very fundamentals of our faith focus on what God has lovingly done for you and for me. We're continually told that it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. A good example of this is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me set the stage. Ephesians was a letter written by Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Paul was in prison at the time that he wrote this. and Paul had started the church in Ephesus years earlier. He had spent three years there before moving on elsewhere. And Ephesus was one of the five major cities in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, Ephesus obviously, Corinth, Antioch, and Alexandria. They were the other four cities, major cities in the Roman Empire. And in this passage, Paul is urging the Christians there to fully understand this concept of radical grace. After all, the concept of grace, like I mentioned, is not found anywhere else. This is truly radical stuff. So let me take you to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Think about that for a second. We are told point blank that, that, Joe, it's not about you, that you guys, it's not about you guys. It's about what God does to lavish his amazing grace upon each of us. We're told that it's not about our works, therefore no one can boast. In other words, if my salvation was delivered to me because of things that I've done, then honestly I wouldn't need a Savior, would I? If my salvation was based on what I do or what I have done, then Honestly, I could boast and say, you know what, I've done more than you guys have, and so therefore I'm a little bit better in the eyes of God than you are. But, but God doesn't say that. God is saying to the contrary. Even while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. I can't do it myself. I can't earn my salvation. I can't be good enough or think enough to get to my salvation. I can't do it myself. And that, my friends, is the bad news. But the gospel is God's good news to my bad news. God's good news to my bad news. And the scripture says that you and I are God's handiwork. In Greek, the language in which the New Testament was originally written, another word for handiwork is masterpiece. 
So Paul is declaring through the scripture that you are God's masterpiece. Think about how awesome that is. The, the, the creator of the universe, the creator of all we know to be good, is lovingly calling you his children, lovingly calling you his masterpiece. That's really good. That's really awesome. That God is saying you are saved not by what you do, but by what I have done for you. You and I have been saved from something, and you and I have been saved for something. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement in England in the late 1700s, and, and he proclaimed that there are really three types of grace, and we'll be looking at these over the next couple of weeks. There's the, the grace that comes before we say yes to Christ. We're going to look at that this morning. There's the grace that God lavishes upon us when we say yes to Christ. And then there's the grace that comes after our salvation, the, 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 the grace that, that guides us and leads us, tells us what we should do and how we should act and what we should say. And that's sanctifying grace. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But this morning, I want to take a deeper look at the grace that God uses to woo us into a deeper connection with Christ, that even before we say yes to God, God has said yes to you, that God wants to bring you into relationship with us. It is God who takes the first action in regards to our salvation. Our acceptance of Christ wouldn't even be possible if God didn't offer us the invitation and the opportunity. John Wesley described grace as a house. Before you go into the house, what do you do? You're, you're on the front porch, hence our, our front porch motif up here. And later on, we'll get to, to, to interact with this a, a little bit better. Provenient grace is that word provenient that means that which comes before. So provenient grace, that which comes before, that grace that comes before we say yes to Christ, that grace that comes that leads us into salvation, but it's God's work in our lives before we say yes to him. Provenient grace is like stepping onto a porch just before you open the door and go inside. God is wooing you toward him. I remember when I was 12 years old, my dad was an aeronautical engineer. We moved from Florida to Cobb County, and as we were getting settled into the new community, my mom dropped a bombshell on our family. Oh my gosh, it was traumatic. She said, guys, we moved here to Georgia, fresh start, new lease on life, we are going to start going to church. No, no, I didn't like that. Church was boring. I didn't want to go to church. I was incensed that my mom would even raise such a notion that you're going to go to church a couple of days later, my fourth day in Georgia, I was playing in the front yard, and a young boy who lived next to me, he invited me to come play kickball in the cul-de-sac with some of his friends. I had so much fun with these newfound friends. They were all my age, went to the same school, and this boy who called me over from next door, he eventually became my best friend. We would room together at the University of Georgia. He would later, years later, be in my wedding. But on that fateful day, my first week in Georgia, we played kickball, and after the kickball game was over, I was headed back home. My mom had called us home for dinner, and he invited me to attend the, the youth group at his local church. I ended up saying yes because I didn't know what else to do. I, I just loved the friends there. I loved the people there. loved the activities and the stuff we were doing. God was still not on my radar, but the cool thing is I was on God's radar. Later in that church, I, I would say yes to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. Years after that, it was at that very church where I said yes to God's call into full-time ministry. 
As I look back, I can see God so much at work in my life, leading me to the time and the place when I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And many of you probably have similar stories. You, you friends, can see the fingerprints of God all over your lives, even before you said yes to God. That's provenient grace, the love and the movement of God that woos us towards his presence. Romans 5.8, like I said earlier, it, it boldly proclaims, God showed his love for us because we, will, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners and Christ dies for us. That's powerful stuff. In other words, God isn't calling you to clean up your act before you come to him. To the contrary, even when you are at your worst, the scripture says, even when you are at your worst, God gives us his best. How powerful is that? I was 12 years old when my parents said, you're going to start going to church. My son is now 12 years old, but when he was a younger kid, he was mesmerized by airplanes. Like I said, my dad was in that industry, and I was just fascinated with, with flying early on. In fact, I'm working on my pilot's license even as we speak. And our son, he loved watching videos of planes taking off and landing. And for his birthday one year, I decided we we're going to do something really kind of cool. I had read that in Tampa, Florida, there's an airport that overlooks the runways to that large airport down there. So I called the hotel and I booked a room. We had some friends who worked for an airline out of Atlanta, so we were able to fly free from Atlanta down to Tampa. And we were going to check into this room and, and just spend one night there. But we were going to overlook the runways and our son could watch planes taking off and landing to his heart's content. So I stressed to the uh, hotel when we booked the tickets or booked the, uh, the reservation that, that we need to, to have a view of the runway. That's all I asked for. At the last minute, we even decided to bring our daughter on the trip. We were going to spend, like I said, only one night at that hotel. So we arrive in Tampa on the flight from Atlanta. We check into the hotel. We were given our key and our room number. And we got to the room. I was excited to open up the curtains to see this gorgeous view of the runway. And instead, it was a gorgeous, unobstructed view of the air conditioner on top of the, the building right next to us. No runway anywhere inside. It was completely on the other side of the hotel. I called the front desk, and I was just grieving in my heart over this. I politely mentioned that the whole reason for coming down here to this hotel was so that we could see the planes taking off and landing. The clerk at the front desk, my goodness, she was so incredibly helpful and apologetic, and she told us that she would see what she can do. So we headed back to the room, watching the air conditioner spin around. That's about all we had to do at that point. But about 10 minutes later, there was a knock on the front door, a knock on the door to our, our room. It was a young man who said that he was going to lead us to the new room. So we grabbed our bags. We didn't have a lot of stuff because we were only there for one night. But, but we proceeded to follow him through a meandering maze of hallways and different floors until finally he, he used his little key card to open up this door. And we looked in, and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. He pointed to a plaque outside on the door, and it said, presidential suite. Man, we walked into that thing and there was a, a huge plate glass window really encompassing the entire wall. He pulled out a remote control and he, he clicked the button and, and the curtains and the shade started to open up. And there you saw two runways, not only one. It was massive. This thing was nicer than my house. I mean, this thing was awesome. You had a huge bedroom on the main floor. Then there was a spiral staircase that took you up to another floor where there was a big TV room, a media room, and then two more, uh, two more bedrooms. 
it was just an awesome experience. We were treated like royalty, even though we certainly didn't pay for that. We really honestly didn't deserve that. It was a trip that we'll never forget, and it was made possible because of the grace given to us by the hotel. We, we didn't deserve it. We could never afford it. We didn't earn it, but it was freely offered. And friends, when we read about God's grace, that's what we're talking about. It's not just the love of God, and, and even if it was, that, that would be enough. But, but God goes so far beyond that, friends, that God lavishes us with grace and mercy and forgiveness and tenderness, tenderness and guidance. That's what grace is all about, something we don't deserve, something we could never, ever, ever earn or experience or achieve on our own. Some of you will know that at Chapel Roswell, we baptize infants. A lot of Christian churches do the same. Now, for some of you, maybe you grew up in a faith tradition where baptism was something you did when somebody accepted Christ. It was an outward sign of their inward salvation. When you got saved, then you would be baptized. It represented your salvation. But at Chapel Roswell and other Christian churches, we do baptize infants. Why? After all, if we baptize a baby, that baby doesn't know what's going on. That baby hasn't had time to say yes to God. And partly that's kind of the point. We baptize infants who aren't old enough to decide to follow Christ. But you see, to us, baptism is a sign of God's grace. That God is already at work in that young person's life, even before he or she understands it or realizes it. Baptism is a sign, not of our decision to follow God, we say, but rather to acknowledge the fact that God is working in that baby's life, even before he or she understands it. After all, it's God who takes that first step in our salvation. That even before I made the decision to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, God was already at work in my life, leading me to the time and place when I could finally say, yes, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Friends, you belong to God. You may have done so many things to mess up your life, but you know what? Christ died for that. Jesus died for that. Out of his amazing love for you, even while we're still sinners, Romans says, Jesus died for us. You are God's masterpiece, God's beautiful creation. I hope that you can look back on your life and you can see the fingerprints of God all over it. I want you to check out the, the big screens real fast. I want you to check out this video. See if you can see that provenient grace of God at work in the lives of these people. This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet, oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. 
Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life, ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James. He was influenced by Thomas. Thomas on Uncommon Joy and Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. If you have your cell phones with you this morning, I invite you to take those out. We've got a couple of questions that I want you to carry out with you as we leave this place this morning, maybe over dinner this evening or lunch after church. You maybe discuss these with your family or your friends or your kids or your spouse or whatever. I mentioned to you that up here we have kind of this front porch motif. And here's what I'll challenge and invite you to do as we wrap up our time together with our closing song. I will invite you to come take one of these flowers. It symbolizes the fact that God is planting seeds. God is depositing seeds in your life and my life and the lives of so many people. We may never know them. We never may never meet them. Kind of like in the video that we just saw. That God is doing some awesome things in so many lives. And so as you come during the last song and you take one of these flowers, we invite you just to uh, kind of stick it in the, the, the dirt there in the soil. And, and again, it represents the fact that, that we're responding to what it is that God's doing in our lives. That we just take it, we plant it, and we, we see the beauty that God brings about. That even before we realize it, God is at work in our lives. Will you, will you pray with me? Well, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your awesome love. Thank you for accepting us just as we are. Thank you for your desire to pick us up, to clean us up, and to give us a mighty plan in this world. Thank you for being a God who isn't distant, that you want to be a part of our lives. You want relationship with us. 
And forgive us, Lord, when we push you away or we refuse your invitations. God, maybe there are some of us who have never understood the concept of a loving God. Maybe to us, religion seems so ritualistic. Help us clear our minds of this concept, God, so that we can focus on the true meaning of following Christ. To acknowledge that we can't do it ourselves and that we need your help and your guidance. If someone, Lord, is just now accepting the fact that you are our Savior, Lord, I pray that you can warm their hearts as only you can. As the Scripture says, the Holy Spirit works in our lives, wooing us toward you. Lord, through this week and throughout our lives, I pray that others can see our lives and they can see our Heavenly Father in our words, in our actions, in our reactions. Give us the strength to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand together as we sing our closing song. One of the ways that we respond to God is through our giving, and you can see different ways that you can give your finances to to Chapel Roswell, a way of acknowledging that, that we trust you, God, with all that we have and all that we are. And like I said, I invite you to come take a flower and then kind of deposited in the soil here and by the end of our time together we'll see just a beautiful bouquet of some awesome things that God is doing. So let's sing together boldly proclaiming our faith and our trust in our Lord. <laughs>